that has been part of the problem that we've had in New Zealand around the debate around climate change policy is that, yes, so we account for, I think it's 0.17% of total global emissions. And right. so, you know, the question is, well, why would we bother putting this straitjacket on the New Zealand economy when, you know, yeah. we're going to not make any difference at all? And, and there's two answers to that. One of which yeah. is that if you add up all of the countries that each individually emit less than 1% of the global right. total of emissions, collectively we add up to 25%. There you go. Right? Which is there more than China, more than the United States, more than the European Union, more than India. Right, and right, right. so small countries do not get off the hook. We all have to play our, our part in this. The second reason is that New Zealand has the second highest emissions per unit of GDP produced in the world. And we have the fifth highest emissions per capita in the world. So our mm. our emissions output for our size is kind of off the hook, right? I mean, it's really, it's, it's massive. So, so we have a responsibility in relative terms to do something about that. Welcome to Think Bigger, Think Better, where we explore how you can apply insights from visionary leaders and the most provocative philosophers and scientists of our time to make your life and our world a better place. Here's your host, author and speaker, Paul Gibbons. And hey, welcome back to Think Bigger, Think Better. Today is the first anniversary of the show, and it's fitting that we have an amazing guest, the Right Honourable, James Shaw, who's Minister for Climate Change and Deputy Finance Minister for New Zealand and co-leader of the New Zealand Green Party. I hope he won't be too embarrassed by this, but James is an up-and-coming global leader of the fight against climate change. He is called by some people a new green. That is, a Green Party member that's also pro-business and believes that businesses can be an immense force for good in the world. In fact, he's devoted his career to transformation of business into a force for good in the world. The minister shares his views on the Paris Accord and steps being taken around the world, specifically in his country, to implement the 1.5 degrees centigrade temperature cap. And he also talks about how young leaders can make the transition into politics. But first, I have two anniversary announcements. Think Bigger, Think Better was ranked a top 20 philosophy podcast. And while I'm really flattered, if you're a regular listener, you know we try to bring much more than just philosophy to the show. And you've made it possible through your ratings, your reviews, and your listenership. Secondly, Think Bigger, Think Better has relaunched its crowdfunding site, Patreon, with benefits to subscribers that include a free copy of Reboot Your Life, a shout out on the show, an invitation to listen in live to a show, a free chapter of the Science of Organizational Change, access to a private monthly subscriber-only podcast, a book of your choice written by one of my guests, an Ask Them Anything Zoom session with one of my guests, a quarterly Google Hangouts session with one of my guests and me, an invitation to a free Inner Circle annual conference hosted by me and yearly in-person attendance at your corporate event. Obviously, that's for corporate sponsors. So what is Patreon? Well, for as little as $2 a month, you can make a huge difference. The big podcasts get thousands of supporters. It takes three clicks. 
become a patron, select a monthly amount and connect it to your PayPal account or to your Venmo account or to a bank account or other means. The link is on my website, paulgibbons.net slash subscribe, and it's on patreon.com slash paulgibbons. I'm going to start sending you some of the goodies above right after you subscribe, but mostly I want you to feel great about supporting work that you think is important to the world. And now I'd like to give a shout out to my first nine patrons on Patreon, Clayton Ham, Yusef Shemisa, Valerie Kaminsky, Frank Smits, George Krisos, Ro Goral, Wendy and Dan Blum and Nick Jankel. Thank you. I'm so, so grateful for your support. And now, on with our interview. I had the good fortune to meet James in 1998. He and a band of young, mid-20s, intrapreneurs were working with the global chairman of PricewaterhouseCoopers to kickstart that firm's sustainability strategy and agenda. James, Fabio Scaragli, and Amy Middleberg King got onto the chairman's agenda. I was impressed. PwC had a deeply hierarchical partnership structure. I was 15 or so years more senior than that crew, and I'd never met the chairman. How had these young leaders built so much influence? Well, they had. And they published Money Does Grow on Trees, a study on business and sustainability that became a cornerstone of PwC's strategy and approach to sustainability. Later, James became a partner in my consulting firm, Future Considerations, and spearheaded our startup called Carbon Considerations, which was launched to help businesses make the transition to a carbon-neutral economy. After that, he hustled back to New Zealand, and as you will hear in the show, began running for office while globetrotting as a consultant. In his words, I lost many more elections than I won. But he finally won a seat, and when the Greens, of which he was now co-leader, formed a coalition government with the Labour Party, led by Jacinda Ahern, she's now the Prime Minister, and also the youngest woman to head a government in the world, James found himself in a ministerial post. And as you will hear in the show a few days later, he was off to meet Pope Francis to discuss climate change with other Pacific Island nations. There's much more I could say about James's fascinating character, but for now, let's just welcome James to Think Bigger, Think Better. Thank you for having me on the show. Let's uh, give a flavor of the sort of chap you are for listeners. I know they know you're a minister, but you started in politics at 35. What made you decide then to make this kind of mid-career lurch from the world of management consulting and business in London, the capital of the world, if you want, to New Zealand's green politics? What, what motivated you? Yeah, you know, I, I know it kind of looks like a, a lurch from the outside, but, but there's a level of consistency there. So the work that we were doing based out of London was for me a kind of a precursor to this work. So, you know, I, I was always trying to bring the conversation around sustainable development and business into the kind of boardrooms and C-suites that, that we were working with, with, you know, variable success. But, you know, doing some really good work and, and I think things that made a difference. And then I did this uh, uh, master's degree at Bath University on sustainability and, and business leadership. And it was actually, it was during that that I uh, think I had my nose rubbed in it so much that I kind of realized the obvious, which is that in order to fix climate change, the private sector alone isn't going to be able to do it, right? It's going to mm. do some good stuff, but that kind of collective 
work isn't going to add up to the scale of the challenge. And so some things when it comes to climate change can only happen as a result of political change, not only because of political change, right, but, you know, because it's going to take all of us and it's going to take everything that we've got. But there are some necessary preconditions that have to happen politically. And so that for me was the decision point. And, and it's so interesting because it's the converse almost in the United States. So you almost might say in the United States, particularly with the current administration, that the politicians are lagging behind the municipalities and the states and the corporations in terms of how seriously they're taking it. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to, I've got to tell you that at some level in most of the world, that is true to some extent. I mean, it's particularly pronounced in the United States, but also in Australia and, and in other countries as well. But we actually, I mean, we see it here in, here in New Zealand, right? We, we have a group of, of business leaders that collectively represent something like half of New Zealand's total emissions output who are right. completely committed to the outcomes of the Paris Agreement, to keeping global temperatures to within 1.5, all of that kind of stuff. And yet our political machinery hasn't caught up with them yet. And I think it's because here, like in the United States or in Australia, while they don't represent a majority, there are a group of businesses that are heavily invested in, you know, fossil fuels or other high emitting gas industrial processes. And, you know, they look at the future and the contribution that they're currently making in cash terms to the economy uh, and the jobs and the communities and things like that, and they dig their heels in and say that this is going to be a catastrophe for us. And politicians being democratically elected in, in our countries are reluctant to let those industries go because they're worried about the impact on jobs and incomes and, and regions sure. and so on, You know, which is all entirely fair and reasonable. But it does lead to a particularly cautious political body and it leads to real polarization. And like I said, that is particularly pronounced in the United States. But you can see, like Australia have been through something like seven prime ministers on the issue of climate change. At some level, climate change has been a part of the end of the career of seven prime ministers over the last Oh, I didn't years. know that. I didn't yeah. know that. I mean, and Australia is sort of slightly on the on the back foot. They're slightly regressive, not perhaps as much as the United States, but because of so much of their national income is fossil fuel derived. Is is that accurate? I'm not an expert yes. on Australian no, that, politics. That, that's, yeah. No, that's exactly it. Right? They they have they have a massive coal mining industry, which the country has done very well out of in economic terms, and you know, and they sell that coal to China, who are using it to power their the growth in their economy and the expansion of their middle class. And so, you know, there is a, a, a group of Australian politicians who are pretty beholden to that industry and saying, well, hang on, yep. do we really want to let go of that? And quite right. And I think one of the distinctions that I've noticed in America, because obviously there's a coal industry, which we tried to tackle under the Obama regime, but people, in my view, confuse coal miners with coal mining. Like yeah. it's not the same. If yeah. you attack the coal industry, and you say that coal mining is something we, we need to be out of that game in 25 years. We need to not stop burning the stuff, stop digging it out of the ground. It's not the same as saying to a coal miner, I don't want you to feed your family. And I think one of the things yeah. that politicians are right do so artfully in America is they collapse the two. Yes, that's right. And it's funny also, right, because mining is often an intergenerational career and whole communities 
have sprung up around mines and form pretty much the sole source of income for that local community. And so then it's pretty easy to conflate those things. And and we have that too. I mean, we, we had a small coal mining industry here in New Zealand as well, and it's located in one particular part of the country. And in that particular part of the country, we have just the greatest rate of resistance to the climate change kind of program than anywhere else in the country, right? And And that's kind of not terribly surprising. But as I keep no. saying, right, and not far from that region, just over the mountains, is some of the best silica deposits in the world, right? Highest yeah. quality silica deposits in the world. And we're going to need a lot of silica to make those solar panels, right? Mm. So, yeah, you know, you're right. Those people can have jobs uh, in the future using pretty much the same set of skills and technologies that we've got today for much yeah. the same levels of income that they're earning yeah. today. Yeah. And such, I come from coal mining stock. I mean, I have a picture of my grandfather covered in coal dust emerging from the pit. And, uh, you know, I understand how precious these jobs are to the community, how it's a sort of way of life, but it's also the filthiest job on the planet. I mean, I could, I can't think of a job that's worse, but I mean, there may be yeah. jobs that are worse, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. So it's a shame. It's a shame. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, right? We're, we're just currently dealing with the consequences of a fire in a coal mine, I think about six or seven years ago which yeah. 29, 29 miners died. Um, oh, gosh. And a friend of, yeah, 2011, it was actually during the 2011 election campaign, and a friend of mine at the time said, you know, imagine if those guys had all been up on roofs installing solar panels. You know, there hasn't been a single death in the solar industry anywhere that we, that we know of. Brilliant. Hey, so for listeners, uh, you know, in case I have some millennials listening, I hope I have a lot of millennials listening. How the heck did you get into politics, man? You were you were living in London. You're a management consultant. Okay, it's always been a, a passion of yours, of course, and sustainability and and yeah. and green politics was always a passion. And then and then you go back to New Zealand, and you don't have uh, you know you don't have resources, you don't have income, you don't have a network, you don't have, you know nothing. Yeah. So how do you get into politics? That's the question for millennials. Maybe well, passionate young people will want to know. Paul, this is going to sound glib, but I basically started running for office. You just started running for office. You didn't kind of worry about other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Resources, yeah, funding, mean, campaign, networking, <laughs> all I ever What do I need that for? Yeah, well, well, I mean, like I said, I, that was a little bit of a glib answer, but a couple of things. You know, because I was a management consultant, because I was freelancing, I was able to, you know, devote more time to my political campaigns than a lot of people who would be working, you know, 40 hours a week on a set timetable, you know, so I had some flexibility in in the way that I managed my time, which meant that I could, you know, kind of move that around. You know, I put in a lot of nights and weekends into it as well. And, uh, you know, I've lost more elections than I've won. Um, (laughs) So, you know. That's great. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yes, there's those old things. Some of this basketball player, there's a basketball player in the United States called LeBron James, and someone always says, "Do you know how many free throws that guy's missed?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. So, well, yeah. I'll tell you what you sh- you should look at the political history of Abraham Lincoln sometime because ah. he he lost about forty elections before he won one, and the one that he won was the presidency of the United States. Is that right? So Did he. Hold you know, any <laughs> office before that? He didn't hold no, a that, local actually, office in Illinois. That, that is actually not true. You're right. He, I think he, I think he got a 
in fact, I think he might have even had a couple of different congressional slots, but kind of got booted out, you know, came back in. And I think he was state senate, you know, for a bit. But, yeah, I mean, it, was, it wasn't exactly a linear progression, let's put it that way. Yeah, no, no, no. And we may have a guy in the United States, Beto, Beto Beto, I don't know how to say that, O'Rourke, who yeah. I b- believe is only a state senator right now, but they're all well, talking about him running in 2020 with – you know, shiny eyes. I don't know whether that'll actually happen. Well, he may certainly run, whether he can. Back to New Zealand. So you're a proud New Zealander. You decided not to go into European politics or British politics, which you could have done. You went back to New Zealand. So let me ask you some New Zealand questions for people for whom New Zealand is very, very far away. Where would you say New Zealand is a a sort of world leader? What can New Zealand be most proud of as a country and where does New Zealand need to raise its game as a country? You know, its competitive strategy, if you will. What would you say about that? There's a number of different ways to answer that question, I think. So we've got a, a history that we're quite proud of when it comes to, you know, progressive uh, institutions. So New Zealand was the first country where women won the right to vote. And in fact, two days ago, we celebrated the 125th anniversary of that election where women wow. first went to the polls. We were, I think, the first country to put in place a, a sort of a comprehensive uh, social welfare system, and that was used as a sort of a petri dish for the Scandinavian countries. Um, oh, wow. Which, ironically, we now look back at and say, gee, isn't their system so good, and what could we learn from them? We were heavily involved in the formation of the United Nations after World War II. Our Prime Minister mm-hmm. Fraser was involved uh, in that very heavily, And in the 1980s, um, we declared ourselves a nuclear-free country and said, you know, we don't want, you know, ships that are powered or armed with nukes and so on in our shores and we won't be using nuclear power in New Zealand and and so on. We basically said no to that technology because we just felt Uh it so destructive. Mm -hmm. So so we've got that kind of history. Uh, What about the Maoris? You guys are very, um, compared to the treatment of Native Americans or Aboriginal Australians, I think that's one thing that I think is a signature yeah, about New it's, Zealand is you, you're you're trying to be better than many other countries yeah. in their treatment of the. I think that the Māori would say everything's relative. <laughs> <laughs> so, they would. Um, yeah. yeah, so so yes, compared to other colonial countries, you know, with you know indigenous populations, I, I think that we do have a better track record, and and in particular in the last thirty or forty years, we've set up a, a sort of a reconciliation process between the government and the various tribes around around the country and mm-hmm. and tried to offer a tiny piece of kind of economic recompense uh, to those tribes for historical breaches of our founding treaty which is a, a document gotcha. of constitutional uh, centrality to us and so we had a shocking history i mean like a appalling history but I guess what the pendulum is kind of swinging and swinging in the other other direction, and so I think that is something. I mean, you're right. I think that we can be proud of of our, and certainly in comparative terms, our recent attempts to redress historical wrongs, and a sort of a you know effort by successive governments, whether they're from the left or from the right, to uh, try and ensure that Indigenous New Zealanders are of at least equal footing but also that they have the same kind of social outcomes because that's really where, you know, that's really where you see the gap is in, you know, education, health, housing, income, 
imprisonment rates, you know, all of, all of that kind of stuff. And, and that kind of colonial history that we have has resulted in those things. And, and that's really where we need to put the effort. Again, well done. And I suppose the second half of our question is, I mean, those are amazing, especially I'm sitting in one of the most conservative countries in the world. Just trouble in many of the areas you just started extending suffrage. Of course, in the United States come much later, the question of recompense for slavery and uh, treatment of the indigenous populations is still one that's unresolved in many people's minds. So, so hats off to New Zealand. But where do you think New Zealand needs to raise its game? What are you trying to achieve? I, mean, I guess you've got some legislation that you're trying to get through at the moment. I mean, that might be a good place to, to, to start. What are you trying to do right now? Yeah, that's right. Well, so in, in my role as Minister for Climate Change, uh, I'm shepherding through a piece of legislation which is designed to translate the Paris Agreement on climate change into domestic law and to ensure that future government policy is aligned with a, a temperature threshold of one and a half degrees of global warming above pre-industrial rates, which is mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The, the kind of sharp end of the wedge, if you like. And that piece of legislation, you know, should set in place a set of targets that's consistent with that temperature goal in terms of our emissions reduction and set up a process for essentially an independent climate change commission to advise the government on what the pathways should be and how how we get from where we are today to to there in the future. Um, And also a process for planning how we adapt to the effects of climate change. So it's, it's pretty comprehensive, but it's also very high level. So it's an overarching piece of legislation. But if we can get it through, then it will kind of create a, uh, you, know, you know that old saying that the, that the economy is a wholly owned subsidiary of the environment. The idea yes. is that, that that temperature goal is a boundary, a threshold that we really ought not to cross. If we can get this piece of legislation through, what it'll do is it'll basically put that that boundary and that threshold into law and instruct the public service essentially that that all government policy needs to align with that outcome and so that is quite significant that's um, hella sweeping i mean that's sweeping law i mean especially the word use of the word all is one yeah. that i think will stick in some people's throats yeah well that would explain the difficulty that i'm having getting it through the house <laughs> I mean, I could also understand, if I can put my cynical hat on right now, I can say, yeah. you know, you're less than 1% of the world economy, something like a third of 1% of the world economy. And isn't there the sort of temptation for politicians, even on both sides of the aisle, to throw their hands in the air and say, even if we get this perfectly, you know, what are we going to do about China, the United States, Australia, you know, I mean, and yes. Russia? And that has been part of the problem that we've had in New Zealand around the debate around climate change policy is that, yes, so we account for, I think it's 0.17% of total global emissions. And so, you know, the question is, well, why would we bother putting this straitjacket on the New Zealand economy when, you know, we're going to not make any difference at all? And and there's two answers to that. One of which is that if you add up all of the countries that each individually emit less than 1% of the global right. total of emissions, collectively we add up to 25%. There you go. Right? Which is there more than China, more than the United States, more than the European Union, more than India. Right, and right, so right. small countries do not get off the hook, right? We, we all have to play our, our part in this. The second reason is that New Zealand has the second highest emissions per unit of GDP produced in the world. And we have the fifth highest emissions per capita in the world. So our mm. our emissions output for our size is kind of off the 
hook, right? I mean, it's really, it's, it's massive. So, so we have a responsibility in relative terms to do something about that. And the third reason is that as an OECD country, as a comparatively wealthy country with an open economy, we can move quite quickly in ways that larger economies, you know, struggle, right? It t- you know, the, the bigger the economy, the, the harder it is to turn uh, the curve. And so we can have demonstration value. And so, you know, I can't remember, somebody once said that the definition of leadership, D. Hock, founder of Visa, the definition of leadership is to go first and show the way. And so I think that we have an opportunity to lead here that not many other countries have got. And therefore, we have an obligation to do so. If you will permit me a 10-second commercial break, Think Bigger, Think Better only survives through the kindness and support of patrons. I refuse to sell ads. If you're enjoying it, why not hit that Become a Patron button on Patreon or on my website, paulgibbons.net slash subscribe. And now back to our show. And where are other countries, small and large, on this legislation that you're trying to get through Parliament? Are, are you, as you just described, are you leading the pack here or are there other well, countries, small or large, who have achieved this legislation already? Again, everything's relative. <laughs> <laughs> so in, in the great bell curve of countries' response to climate change, we would be at the thin end of the leading wedge, but not actually first. So the piece yeah. of legislation that we've got, I, th- I think there's something like half a dozen other countries that have got independent climate change commissions or institutes like the one that we're proposing. And the piece of legislation that we are putting through is modelled directly on the United Kingdom's Climate Change Act of 10 years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah, actually, uh, which was a bipartisan piece of legislation and has resulted in a huge drop in their emissions. I think that the United Kingdom has managed to reduce their emissions, I think, 43 or 46% in 10 years, which is staggering. And you think about that. That's a huge reduction in emissions. It's Imagine massive. if the United States could pull yeah. something like that off. Wow. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> and at the same time, at the same yeah. time, the UK has had the fastest growing economy in the G7. Right. Yeah. So their rate of growth has outpaced the United States, China, Canada. You know, all all the other kind of major economies there. So this notion that reducing your emissions comes at the expense of your economy, I think has been fairly fundamentally disproven. Sure. Very, very interesting. Was that a Blair Brown? Well, it would have been Gordon Brown in 2008. Was it him? Or was it was, it- yeah. So it, it was. What was interesting is that is that the piece of legislation originally started in, uh, I think, with Friends of the Earth. And in the UK, the environmental movement is quite a posh movement because it originally started in the UK it started as the conservationist movement which was really the kind of landed gentry who wanted to protect the countryside whilst you know industrial England was kind of creeping out into it and you know people were building kind of terrace houses all over the you know lovely green hills and so on so the conservationist movement actually started from quite a different place in the UK and so that theme runs sort of through a portion of the Tory party. So the Friends of the Earth felt that they weren't making a lot of progress with the Labour government, who were interested in protecting jobs and industries. And, you know, some of those industries were kind of higher pollution. So they went to the Conservative opposition, drafted a law 
uh, this Climate Change Act and got the opposition on board. Then they went to a whole bunch of Labour backbenchers right. and said, would you support such a law? And got enough that they had a majority in the House. And then they went to the Prime Minister and said, well, we've got a majority for this. Do you want to pick it up as a government bill and be the hero? Or shall we just push it through without you? And um, the Prime Minister, not surprisingly, went with the former option. So it was quite a, it had a really interesting kind of history to it, which was... That is interesting. That is really our, interesting. Our, our, yeah, ours is kind of coming from the other direction, right? Because you've got here, you've got a you know a, a sort of a left wing environmentalist government and a yeah. conservative opposition, and and so we're more in the position of having to try and convince the opposition that this is a good thing. I understand, but you're in a coalition with Labour, so I mean, how what sort of alignment? You may have to be careful about what you say, but what sort of alignment is there on the from the Labour Party? Because Labour Party usually worries about the threats to the livelihood of workers or ought to anyway, and the least well off. And um, so they do. And there's, I mean, there's a high degree of alignment, but they do, they are playing that role of saying, well, you know, what about the people who could get left behind? What about the distributional impacts of some of the policies yep. that we have to yep, put in yep, place yep. in order to do this? And, and, and good for them, good right? I mean, good for them. Those are important questions yes. to ask, right? Yes. yes, they absolutely are. They absolutely are. The thing is that we're also in a coalition with a party called New Zealand First who have a strong kind of rural, agricultural kind of, in fact, they refer to themselves as the party of the provinces. Um, and so, well, you can see where this is going. The piece of legislation has to reflect enough of a consensus across all of those concerns. And actually, that's a good thing, right? If we, you know, like if, if it was if I just snapped my fingers and kind of had my way with it without taking into account those concerns, then this would not be a terribly durable piece of legislation. It would end up getting repealed when the rubber really hits the road in about five years' time. Sure, you'd never get behavioural compliance That's in the right. rural communities That's who are going right. to have a rule in, in making all this shit happen, right? So That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, like, I don't, I don't know where this piece of legislation is going to land. It's going to get through. And I guess the thing is, I, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like, but I'm I'm pretty satisfied that it will meet the scientific requirement for us to live within that temperature threshold yep. and that it will sufficiently take into account the concerns of those communities that feel that they're going to be, or that there is a risk, there's a very real risk that they would be disproportionately affected by the transition. And to me, you know, that's all, that, that's actually important. And so I'm, I'm actually kind of grateful for the perspectives that the coalition partners bring to this. And it doesn't make your life any easier in the short term, but yeah, as you say, you'll be great, you know, and I, and I wish you the best of luck. From my point of view, from a, an external advisor, someone who's neither really familiar with New Zealand or or this particular piece of legislation, what's inspiring about it, from my point of view, is that, you know, you make the New Zealand economy fit for purpose for 2050, yeah. 2075, you know, you are, you know, the opportunities, it's an interesting theme in sustainability. I'm sure you know about it. Is that in sometimes legislation can actually drive innovation. I mean, the conversation yes. in America is it always kills innovation. It always kills profitability. It destroys businesses. But actually by making strict, you force companies to innovate in directions that can be useful. The Prius, That's for right. example, first hybrid vehicle. I mean, you can, you can make companies do the right thing for themselves and for the world against their own wishes, if you will, and against their yeah. short-term interests. Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, like innovation is a function of constraints. So when, when times are good and you don't have constraints, you tend to just keep on cranking the 
handle and and printing money and doing what you've always done, right? Because it's, why wouldn't you? (laughs) Don't mess with something that's that's working for you. But when the constraints start to come on, that's when you have to get creative because like, well, how am I going to keep making money in an area where, I don't know, labor costs are rising or I'm struggling to recruit the right staff or I'm facing uh, competition from a new entrant or a different country uh, with a different cost base or... I've got to do all of the same stuff, but with 10% of the output of pollution that I'm doing it today. And that's when you get creative. And so, you know, it's funny, earlier this year, we put a, we basically put a ban in place on exploring for new sources of oil and gas in our oceans. So we have a, an offshore, it's mostly gas, there's a bit of uh, petroleum product that comes up, but we've got an offshore gas industry. Mm -hmm. Um, which has been operating for 100 years in in one form or another. And so we said, well, we know where we need to be in 2050, so we're just going to stop issuing permits to… We're just going to stop looking. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's right. We're going to stop looking. We're not going to wind down any of the existing production. We'll let that tail out over the course of the next 30 years because, you know, these are big fields and it takes a while for them to expire. But we're just going to stop looking for more. And that did cause quite a lot of upset uh, in the gas industry, as you can imagine it would, and in the particular region of the country where that industry is based. However, in the six months since that point, we have had hundreds of millions of dollars pour into the hydrogen economy. And in that industry, in that, you know, in that region, you know, they're kind of going, well, look, we've got all this infrastructure, we've got all these pipes, we've got all this expertise Uh, and all this technology, you know, how can we be a part of New Zealand's energy future using that technology that we've got and something that produces no emissions? The answer is hydrogen. And we're seeing huge amounts of innovation and investment that we had not seen 12 months ago. Gosh, you know, I really just just can't wish you, you know, or an atheist to say Godspeed. I'm not sure what it actually means, but, you know, Godspeed (laughs) with this. (laughs) Uh, It it does sound amazing. And, And of course, you're not getting a you're not sleeping well at night as you as you midwife this thing through. This is your your signature. I guess you've been in office for for a year ish now a little over. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Well, we just had our anniversary about three weeks ago. So this is a big hairy deal for you. Yeah, it's huge. It really is significant. But, you yeah. know, look, if it was easy, we would have done it 20 years ago, right? And I wouldn't need to be here. Indeed, indeed. Hey, James, what is happening in Poland? You're off to Poland in two weeks, aren't you? What's happening yes, there that's right. on the climate so, front? Yeah, so, I mean, everyone talks about the Paris Agreement. Paris was COP23, which was the uh, – sorry, COP21, which was the 21st annual United Nations Conference on Climate Change. Yeah. Uh, and, and the Paris Agreement – sort of described what it is we want to do, but it didn't say a great deal about how we want to do it. Uh, So what's happening, what is in Poland is COP24. And the reason this one's important is because it's what we call the Paris rulebook, which is how we do what we said we would do in Paris. Uh, And so for the last couple of years, you know, officials from around the world have been negotiating, you know, what what are the rules, what are the guidelines for achieving the outcomes in, in Paris? And it's significant in that sense and and also it is part of this ongoing negotiation between every country on earth about how we collaborate to expand our economy worldwide and at the same time reduce our emissions that's just amazing 
It's amazing. What a privilege to be part of it. And, you know, with any luck, you'll have your legislation behind you. You'll you'll have something, you know, very concrete to show. Maybe not, actually. Maybe not. That not, may at, be too not, not at this one, but maybe at the next one. <laughs> yeah, maybe the next one. Yeah. And uh, did you get to meet the Pope this year? Did I see that on your Twitter feed? Did you, yeah. did you actually go to, you got to hang out yeah. with the dude? So this, so we, we, we came into government. I got sworn in in early November of 2017, about six weeks after our general election. And COP 22, or no, 23, which was in Bonn, was happening three yeah. weeks after I got sworn in. And the Pope had invited all of the Pacific nations to come to the Vatican for a bit of a conversation around climate change in the Pacific. Because as you know, this Pope, uh, Pope Francis, climate change and the environment is one of his big kind of themes. And he wanted to use, I guess, the authority of his office to try and shine a light on the effect of climate change on some of the most vulnerable nations, uh, which are the low-lying Pacific Island states. And so I was kind of in this strange experience of kind of trying to get furniture into my office and recruit staff and all this kind of stuff. And, and one of my political advisors looked up from behind his computer at me and he said, do you want to meet the Pope? <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> sure. It's amazing how a couple uh, of atheists like you and me get would get you know get jollies out of doing that. But you know, the guy yeah. is uh, a spiritual and moral leader for the world, irrespective of his theological beliefs, right? Well, that's right. And and you know, New, New Zealand wants to do everything that we can to support our Pacific neighbours as well. And so you know, the opportunity to kind of participate in this and help. I guess, amplify that message. And just knowing the reach that the Vatican has in kind of moral and, frankly, in media terms is huge, right? And so, you know, it was a, a, a terrific opportunity. So you get, I mean, th this is this is quite a job, Paul. This so. is a kind of pinch yourself moment, right? You've been running yeah. for election, like, for a decade. You know, you've lost a lot more than you won. You get thrown in. You're trying to figure out where to put your office chair. Someone says, do you want to go meet the Pope? It's kind of like a, a pinch yourself kind of moment. Like, really? Already? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I'll cool. tell you what, last week I was in Antarctica. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I, I was down in Antarctica at Scott Base, which is the New Zealand Scientific Research Facility. It's just over the hill from McMurdo Station, the U.S. Uh, base there, and spent three days there talking to scientists who are – out living out on the ice in tents, 300 kilometers from from Scott Base, drilling holes in the ice to try and find out what the effect of climate change is on the melting of the ice caps. So yeah, insane. Yeah, really great. Hey, you know we're running out of time. I, but Victoria tells me you might be coming to the United States, so I hope to find out more about that and maybe Carrie and I, you know, uh, head out and see if we can't do a meet and greet or I don't know, you're not coming here for the, for the weather. So you'll be busy, but maybe, maybe we could do something. What would you say to Americans? We got a couple of minutes left. Let me lie to the closing thing. Like I'm talked to you and I'm left with an inspired by, you know, some of the great things you're doing, some of the work you're trying to do. I mean, you know, what it would be like to have a country like New Zealand be, be an exemplar for the, for the world and, you know, both the treatment of indigenous peoples and your extension of suffrage to women and, you know, continuing that kind of moral leadership into the 21st century. That's like really, really inspiring stuff. And, and living in America right now, especially if you're progressive, man, it's depressing every single day. You know, Trump's most recent quote, by the way, was, was my gut, I'm going to paraphrase him because I remember exactly, tells me better information than most people's brains than anyone's brain. 
actually. My gut sometimes tells me better information than anyone's brain, which is the most hubristic statement I've ever heard in my entire life as someone who teaches cognitive biases. Like, that's the most... Anyway, what would you say to Americans? Like, what, what, are, what are Americans, you know, what, what ought we to be thinking about in this kind of dark times for the environment and for progressive politics? Well, I would just say that there is some amazing stuff happening in the United States. And, you know, I, I was actually, I was in uh, San Francisco for three days about mm, six weeks ago yeah. at a conference that was hosted by Governor Jerry Brown of, of California. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, there were 17 U.S. states there, uh, governors and state-level senators and, and Congress uh, people. And those 17 states represent 60% of U.S. GDP. And there were hundreds, if not thousands, of businesses uh, represented there. And the work that those states and those companies, and in fact, something like 1,600 cities, including in states that are outside those 17 that were represented, you know, is extraordinary. And, you know, the United States is actually going to hit its 2020 emissions reduction target in spite of the federal government. That's amazing, the, right? Yeah, because of the work. That is happening at the at the states and the cities and in those companies. And so, yeah, you know, you can kind of watch the news and, and get depressed about it, or you can just get on with a job, right? And so I'm I'm actually tremendously inspired at some of what I see coming out of the US. It's still producing some of the most important technologies and innovations that we need to be able to make this transition to the low carbon future. Um, it's still, uh, you know, emissions are coming down. The economics of it are changing, right? There's more solar jobs in solar getting created than in coal at, at something like a rate of four to one in the US. And so I would just sort of take heart in the good things that are happening and make sure that you don't feel disempowered by whatever you kind of see in the, you know, newspapers and on, and on television. And in fact, just join with all those others who are, still in and keep it up because you know the united states you know if you look at its history it's fluctuated you know it's gone through periods of you know being frankly quite regressive and other periods where it's been hugely progressive yeah and and you know in the words of jfk a shining light a beacon on a hill and so i hope that wasn't reagan but i think it might have been reagan. well maybe it was well you know <laughs> reagan was more yeah. progressive than the current federal yeah, government so damn sure so, you know, that I, I just yeah. think this, this too shall pass. Yeah, yeah, this too shall pass. Well, look, I'm going to let you get back to your legislation. And um, I'm so grateful to, you know, we've known each other for 20 years now. Can you believe that? Oh, it means we're 20 years older. But I'm so yeah. grateful to you for taking the time to, to share this stuff with my mostly American listenership. I mean, mostly American and European listenership. But I think there's... there's just so much inspirational content there. I really hope I'm really leaving it with a kind of a, a more optimistic look at, at how the world's doing here. So keep up the great work. Keep fighting a good fight, buddy. Thank you, Paul. And for the sake of your listeners who can hear you but can't see you, you still look good. <laughs> Thank you very much, mate. All right. You look after yourself. Good luck. Oh, you too. I'll be, Thank I'll you. be following this legislation. I'll be looking for the, that signature tweet. Thanks for having me on the show. And thank you for listening. So who's coming up on the show? Well, we have an interview with uh, the master of the Tesla podcast. We have an evolutionary biologist coming on. We have a famous economist. 
Richard Baldwin coming on. We have an expert on plastics pollution coming on. We have an expert on blockchain coming on. And we have Kate Mann, a philosopher and author of a book called Empathy coming on. If you decided to become a patron during the show, you have my heartfelt thanks. I'll be sending you buckets and buckets of swag. There will be eventually patron-only content podcasts that I will record just for patrons. And one of the things that's really fascinating me right now and that I cover in Truth Wars is polarization, what we call tribal reasoning, which is also related to motivated reasoning. And what we find in psychology is that we believe in accordance with our behaviors and not the other intuitive way around. So if you're a smoker, you're disinclined to believe health warnings about cigarettes. And if you drive a Ford 150, and we have a lot of those in Colorado, you will tend to reject climate science. The arrow of causality goes in the wrong way. We'd want our higher functions, our big brains, driving our behaviors and not our behaviors driving our brains. And we've talked a little bit about climate science and everybody has strong views. People with only ninth grade earth sciences education get loud and snarky on my Facebook page. They discount the fact that someone with maybe 40 years more education and study with them in the field, a climate scientist, might know more than them. And even I'm sure than I ought to be. And I have about 13 years of post high school's education in the sciences. If you lean right, you think it's a hoax. If you lean left, it's the most important problem we face. And changing those beliefs is like telling a Manchester United fan that she ought to support Chelsea or a Jets fan that he ought to be a Dallas fan. And this is worrying stuff. And I just wanted to share that with you. That's really what I'm grappling with intellectually now is what we might do about things such as that. So many thanks again. Thanks for listening. Thanks for all your support. Talk to you next year, perhaps in 2019. To celebrate the launch of the show, and thank you all for listening. I'm going to be giving away books, lots and lots of books. All you have to do is leave a review in iTunes. We're going to raffle off a book every single week for 12 weeks. So head on over to paulgibbons.net slash iTunes to get easy to follow directions and let me know the title of your review to make sure that you're entered to win. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Think Bigger, Think Better. Great ideas are great, but this isn't gospel. Share your critical thinking in the comments. Where do I disagree? What insights were most powerful? If you got value, don't forget to share the value by sharing the podcast. Finally, to get information on book and blog releases and new video content, head over to paulgibbons.net and join the community of thinkers talking about using science and philosophy to make our world a better place.